I actually went elk hunting with my some of my family in Colorado for a, a bit and had some time to relax after the feast. I, you may not understand having not done there, done that and been there, but when you uh, speak for eight days in a row, it takes quite a bit of uh, emotion and a, a lot of energy and focus. And uh, after about out eight days of that, uh, you feel like you'd like to take a little break. So uh, we were able to do that and uh, had a good time with family. Also, this past week, I've uh, been up working on uh, the project in Schoonapah, and I think we're making significant prog- progress there. Uh, looking at the way world events are going and the financial situation in the whole world and the prophecies regarding it, uh, things seem to be happening very, very rapidly toward the troubles that the Bible prophesies. I uh, just heard a report that uh, uh, Canada has had deep snow over millions of acres of canola oil, and it just destroyed the crop entirely. So uh, China, the United States, and some other countries are very heavily dependent on canola oil from Canada. So it just seems to come in one report after another about all the troubles that we're having. They say they're losing two dairy farmers a day in Wisconsin, uh, biggest milk and butter producing nation, uh, state in the nation, and two dairies a day are going down. That's If you figure it out, that's over 700 in a year. And how many does it take before there's no more milk and butter and cheese and and, uh, dairy products around? So there's there's just an awful lot going on that might not meet the eye uh, that is happening very, very rapidly. So I think that what we're seeking, uh, according to Scripture, of God's hidden treasures and the things that he has to show the world to prove that he is God are not going to be too long before they're forthcoming. And things are going to change very dramatically. In any case, uh, we had a good week there. Uh, I did have one incident, which uh, I'll, I'll relate to you briefly. I I was riding along off the highway on the side-by-side that Gloria has, uh, so I didn't want to wear the tires out on the pavement. So I was kind of dodging the culverts, uh, get back on the highway for a few feet, and then back off on the shoulder again. Well, there's a, a landmark along there, which is very, very important landmark, uh, a diamond shape. And I wanted to see it as I went by. I'd seen it many, many times, but I just wanted to see it again. So I look up there, forgetting that there's a deep dry wash right in front, just past it, with a, about a six-foot culvert. And so the, the fall from the highway down to the bottom of that wash is at least eight feet, uh, maybe more. I didn't measure it, but uh, it's a six-foot culvert in any case. So as I looked at the landmark and turned my head back again to see where I was going, I was going off the edge of the culvert. And uh, I don't know where all I bounced in that four-wheeler. Uh, it hit 
almost not quite on top, but was going over on its top when it did hit. So the roll cage is bent pretty good. And uh, I some of my shoe prints were on the ceiling. And the seat that I was sitting on had been thrown clear out of the vehicle. So somehow it hit and I got lifted up and the seat went out and I came back down. And it was laying on its side, and uh, and I'm laying there hurting pretty badly. Uh, I don't even know what's hurting the worst. My ear was bleeding, and I couldn't get out. My my arms and my shoulders were so bunged up, I couldn't pull any weight. So some guys stopped, and six or eight of them, and four of them were wrecker operators. So they managed to take the windshield off the bike so they could pull me out that way. And uh, then they winched it back on the road, and it's kind of going down a road like this now. But uh, I'm bruised from almost down to the elbow, clear across my back on this shoulder, and the other one's pretty bunged up. The ear is getting better now, and uh, so is the leg and other places. <laughs> but uh, I don't think God uh, allowed me to die, maybe for a reason. We have some purposes to fulfill, and I think Satan would like those purposes frustrated because even on that project alone up there, Isaiah 45 says that it will be used to show the whole world from east to west that God is God. And if there's anything that Satan doesn't want, it's for the world to know who God is because they're worshiping him. So uh, I think I was spared as I look at that bike and look back at the hole it went in. So there's no way I should have been alive, or I certainly should have been had some broken bones, and not not one broken bone, just some real sore places, and maybe that helps humble and uh, and helps us keep our perspective on who's important, what's important, and that God is, and we aren't. Because we can die in an instant. It doesn't take very long, and, and we can be gone. So I think by the grace of God, I survived that and was uh, back at work in a day or two, sort of working. <laughs> I, I still don't get around too well, but I, it's, it's getting better day by day. So in, in any case, uh, that was the adventure um, maybe I'll relate to you uh, a dream I had. Was it Wednesday morning? I think it was Wednesday morning. Just before I woke up, it was it was quite vivid, and uh, I don't know quite what to make of it. But in any case, uh, the the scene was that I was helping Herbert Armstrong through his house. And we were getting near the bedroom, and he asked me if there were any spiritual Jews anywhere in the world. And I said, yes, sir, there are. And then he said, it's yours. And then he said, this is hitting me really hard. He was starting to have a heart attack. I got into the bed. He never spoke again. He died right there. And I thought, was that a message? It's not a message from Herbert Armstrong because he's dead. The dead know nothing. He's not in heaven sending me a dream. 
uh, or anything of the kind. So, uh, but was there some tie in there between the end of Isaiah 39 where we see the end of what Herbert Armstrong did occurring and how his sons would be eunuchs in Babylon. And I went over that ground some last time I spoke, showing that those bits and pieces and parts and spittle and so on that came out of Christ's mouth when he scattered the church are basically powerless, as is a eunuch, to reproduce, to accomplish anything, to grow, uh, to do a work. Uh, they've tried, and they've gotten basically nowhere. Uh, some have thought that the kingdom of God's another two or three or four hundred years off. I don't know whether that's current thinking, but it was 15 years ago or so. Uh, others are still clinging to the idea that Germany is going to attack and destroy America, and the church is going to a place of safety called Petra. And uh, I think it's quite clear to us now that neither of those scenarios is the case. So there are a lot of things we didn't understand, didn't grasp. Uh, Herbert Armstrong did know enough to teach us truth, to teach us God's way, and to call many, and his job was done. And he died after accomplishing the job that God gave him. It wasn't the job he thought he had, nor was it the job others thought he had. He didn't refer to Matthew 28 a great deal. He referred to Matthew 24:14 and preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end would come. But it should be quite obvious now, 33 years after his death, that he did not accomplish that, nor has the end come. So, what's left of the church is still wandering in confusion, trying to cling to prophecies that obviously were not correct, trying to do a work of preaching the gospel around the world and accomplishing almost nothing along those lines. There was a time when Herbert Armstrong, Garner Ted Armstrong, and the World Tomorrow broadcast on radio and TV was known to almost all Americans. It was just everywhere. You couldn't tune across the railroad, the railroad, the radio dial without running across it in the night or in the day. It was everywhere. And I remember speaking to people here and there, and nearly everybody knew of it that I spoke to, just strangers on the street, because I was wondering. And yeah, they knew about it. Do that today. How many have heard of Herbert Armstrong and Garner Ted Armstrong? Almost no one. A few will remember way back. But anybody 33 years old or older has not been exposed at all, or whatever. So, it's just gone, and it's not there anymore. Now, you can ask on the street again, how many have heard of the Philadelphia Church of God in Oklahoma? I don't think you'd get one out of a thousand that had heard of that. 
How many have heard of United Church of God or Living Church of God, offshoots of Worldwide Church of God? Nobody. Unless you're affiliated in some way with the church. You might find one somewhere, somehow, that's been listening to one of their broadcasts, whoever they might be. But it would be a rare occurrence. It's just not known. The gospel is not being preached around the world as a witness so that the end can come. Now, it has to be done. But it is not currently happening. Nobody knows about it. There's hardly any witness going out, and certainly not enough that the world would know about it. So how's this going to get done? It's prophecy. It's in the Bible. It's in Matthew 24. Got to happen. Luke 21. Has to happen. How's it going to get done? I think you could probably go and do a poll with whatever church members you can find that are left that have some had some affiliation with Worldwide Church of God. And you could poll them and you could ask them, how is this going to get done? You know what the most common answer would probably be at this point? If they think the group that they're with is going to accomplish it, they'd say, well, we're going to do it right here. But most of the church, the greatest percentage and majority of the church, are not with United or Living or Flurry or whatever other chunks might be a little bigger than others. And they are clueless. Probably among them, the commonest response you would find now, because they've kind of given up on the groups. So the commonest response would probably be, well, it'll have to be the two witnesses. And you know what? They're right. But ask them how that is going to come to pass, in what form it will take, when will it be, who will it be, and all that, they'll be clueless. They don't know. So, how's it going to happen? I've been driving toward the point, and I'm probably not going to turn it loose like a bulldog for a while yet, that there is a new calling. There is a new work. And anyone who learns about that is going to be responsible for that knowledge. God does not give you something unless he intends you to use it. When he began to show you the truth decades ago, he intended you to take that truth and use it in your life and to support and help the work that he was doing through Herbert Armstrong and Worldwide Church of God. That was part of our calling was to pay and pray, right? It had to be supported. It started very small, and if you're going to be on radio and television and produce magazines, it takes a lot of money. 
So, God began to call a lot of people, and their combined tithes and offerings allowed that work to be done. Did you ever think about how the end time work, the last work, is going to be financed? It's only going to be a very small remnant, about 10% of what was, that come to do the end time work. And 10% of what was will not be by any means big enough, if they were all doing tithes and offerings, to do a worldwide work in terms of radio, television, publishing, whatever. It's going to have to be financed another way. Those people who come are going to be almost in a refugee status. Right? He says they'll come from all four corners of the earth to Zion for protection and to do a work. Well, if they leave their homes, their jobs, whatever they've had, at a time when World War III is breaking out and America is being destroyed and they're fleeing ahead of the Assyrian, they're not going to have anything with them but what's on their back. Now, how are they going to support anything? You can't. It's got to come from another direction. I'll just leave you with that. We'll get there later on how it can be accomplished. Now, I started in, last time I spoke, to Isaiah 40, having gone through the previous chapters, 36 through 39 or whatever they are, of Hezekiah and what he did in terms of prophecy. We went through the two historical reviews of Hezekiah's life in Kings and Chronicles. But then Isaiah is strictly a book of prophecy. So when Hezekiah is mentioned and several chapters are devoted to what he did in his life, then there has to be a connection to end-time prophecy that we can read and understand in light of current events today. So, looking at that, I think it's become pretty clear to me, and I hope to you but by now, that Hezekiah and Herbert Armstrong were types, or Herbert Armstrong was a type of Hezekiah. Not the same person by any means, and he wasn't a king of ancient Israel, no. But the life was similar in some ways. When Hezekiah took over in Israel, he started cleansing the temple. Well, when Herbert Armstrong came to a, began to come to a knowledge of the truth, he began to cleanse false doctrine, the spiritual temple, to get rid of paganism, Protestantism, uh, get the true holy days, the true Sabbath, uh, to understand why we were born, instead of someday going up and sitting on a cloud in heaven, or whatever. So he began to cleanse and repair and to 
get the temple in order. And then he almost lost his life, and God restored him, I believe, uh, healed him of a heart attack. And he had about nine more years. Hezekiah had 15. Everything's not the same, but the pattern is there. And then Hezekiah's sons, because Hezekiah had showed everything to the world, as Herbert Armstrong did, everything there was he showed to the kings of the earth. Let them know about it all. Had them come perform in the auditorium that was set aside as a house for God. And pagans came in to perform there. So God said, your sons will be eunuchs in Babylon. And Herbert Armstrong's sons in the ministry have become eunuchs in Babylon, unable to accomplish anything. Hey, I'm one of them. To this point, we've been able to accomplish almost nothing. Right? We were a little bigger. Now we're a lot smaller. Uh, We don't have a broadcast. Anybody in the world that wants to can go to our website. It's off right there on the Internet. Anybody that wants to can go there and see 24 years now, nearly, of sermons that are showing the correct view of what is going to happen in the church. Jeremiah said he proclaimed it for 23 years. Well, that's about what has happened here. And then I changed from that prophetic message, let's just go to the New Testament and talk about Christian living, per se. Not because of the time, but that's just the way it happened. Now, we came to the end of what Herbert Armstrong had done. And his sons, the church, spittle and vomit as we are, have been able to accomplish virtually nothing. But we're going to see that there are some very, very important things that must yet be accomplished. And that God is going to back those and help them, and he's going to call a people out of the spittle and vomit and jetsam of what is left over. He's going to call 10% that he recognizes as faithful to come and finish a work. Begin and finish a work. I don't think we've begun that work. Unless somebody get me wrong and say, well, you think this is that work. No, I don't think that work has started yet. I don't think it will start until God draws that remnant together. Now, I believe we're a preparation crew to get it ready so the place can be there that God can gather. And I think he's made that very clear. So it's not that that work, in one sense, has already started, but the preparation for that work is going on. And when the time is right, and I think it is very near, God will draw his people together so that they can do a work. Now, they're sitting out there not knowing any of this, right? You're sitting here knowing it. But they're out there, that 10%, and they don't have a clue. And they're going to see some things. And it will stir them to come. 
and they will be ready to go to work. Now, what can you say that is? Suddenly these people wake up. They see some things, they wake up. And they say, I need to go there because I see such and such. That's a calling. It's a direct calling from God to those whom He stirs. At one time, He called you by stirring you through booklets, through broadcasts, or however. He stirred you, called you to come and support a work that was being done. A calling of many, so that a few might be chosen to do the rest. So it was a direct calling from God. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So the very fact that you were part of the church shows that God was active in your life. And is. But what we're looking at is a whole new start. He calls it the former temple and the latter temple. We were called originally, to help build the former temple, headquartered in Pasadena, California. And we accomplished that. And then he said it would come apart and be spewed widely and rejected and die. And it did and has. Now there is nothing left. So he has got to start a whole new Temple, spiritually speaking, and physically speaking, I do believe. And he has already called all of those, essentially, who will be needed to accomplish that work. But he has decided that he is only going to call 10% of them to do it, his tithe. Not 90%, not half, but 10%. He's made it very clear. So, they don't even know where to go at this point or what to do. So, he's going to have to make it clear to them where they're to go, what they're to believe, the job that they have to do. It will have to be explained to them. So they'll come, kind of like you get conscripted into the army. And you come and say, well, here I am, what do I do? And they tell you, well, go and get your hair cut off and get a few shots and do everything we say. We own you now. Now, God is going to do something similar. He's going to make a need known. He's going to make a place known, a way known that is safe. He says they'll be fleeing, uh, Jeremiah 50, fleeing ahead of the Assyrian army saying, how do I get to Zion? They will have learned they need to go to Zion. And that's where they'll be headed. And they'll be asking, how do I get there? And when they get here, they'll, be, they'll say, now what do we do? And it will have to be explained to them. That there is a job that has to be done, and here's your part in it. This is a calling from God. Now, once they receive that knowledge and understanding, 
They will be responsible for what they know. Can't deny it. Can't run from it. No place to go anyway. The only place that will be safe is around Zion. So, they'll be there. Now, there'll be another cut coming when the temple is built and Jerusalem is built and the beast and false prophet take it over. Then you flee from Jerusalem to Zion. And it says, any who look back, go back or whatever, or hesitate, will die. So even of those who are called to do the end time work, they still have to be faithful and true and endure to the end. And when the time of the final flight occurs, they better not hesitate. So what I'm telling you is that you already understand the basics of this. And God holds you responsible for it. If you turn your back on it, you're in trouble with Him. You're not in trouble with each other. You're not in trouble with me. You're in trouble with God. Because this knowledge came from Him. It didn't come from me. He gave it to me. I preached it to you. And you looked in your Bible and you saw it. And that's why you're here. I'm just telling you, you better not turn your back on it. Because this is the preparation for what God is doing and he's made you a member of that prep team. You cannot go back from that. So we cannot be discouraged. We cannot be frustrated. We cannot be negative. We must say, thank you God that we have this knowledge now. Thank you God that we're here ahead of time. We don't have to be sitting out there like those people who don't have a clue today where Zion even is. And they'll be asking at the time that they're actually fleeing. Where is it? Now that's a scary proposition. You don't know where you're going. You have an army coming behind you. And you're having to ask your way. You're not in that position. You already know where Zion is. If you've accepted it, you know where Jerusalem is. I just read this morning right there in Zechariah 12. Turn back there and read it to you. Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Now, to me, that indicates, along with other scriptures, saying that Jerusalem will be desolate for many generations, and the cities of Judah desolate, and no inhabitants, and that those waste places will be built. But here is an indication that Jerusalem will be inhabited again, it's not now, in her own place, even the real Jerusalem. Because the Jerusalem the people recognize today is not Jerusalem at all. It's an Arabic city built by Arabs. And they claim it. 
And they were asked why they were building Jerusalem. That's not the real Jerusalem. And they said, it is the new Jerusalem. We're building it. And they did. The Dome of the Rock is theirs. All those interloper Jews who don't understand Scripture and don't understand history over there saying it's ours. And the Arabs are right. They built it. It's their city. Some of God's people did inhabited some after taking into captivity and went from the Middle East and North Africa to Western Europe until God allowed us to come back here 432 years ago. No, we, we have so much to be thankful for, brethren. We need to grasp that and realize how fortunate, how blessed we are to know ahead of time where and essentially when this is all going to occur and how God is going to do an end-time work with His 10%. There aren't one in a thousand, not even probably close to that, who are members of the Worldwide Church of God who understand that today. It's not being preached, except here. It's the only place. The only place on earth. And we don't amount to much, do we? And I tried to kill myself this last week. Well, I didn't really try, but came close anyway. So let's go back to Isaiah again, here in 40. And we'll see this unfold as we go through this body of Scripture, because uh, Herbert Armstrong certainly was a type of Hezekiah. I think there's no question of that. In Isaiah 40... Completely changes. Whole new thought pattern starts here in Isaiah 40. Uh, just the, the end, end of chapter 39 is kind of a downer. You're going to die and your sons will be eunuchs in Babylon, accomplishing nothing. And that's what happened to Hezekiah's physical sons. And that's what happened to Herbert Armstrong's spiritual sons. Accomplishing nothing. So, here in chapter 40, after that kind of pretty negative, frustrating end of 39, and hasn't it been a frustrating end of worldwide? (laughs) Oh my, how frustrating. Here's a new message. Now, I started through this, but I want to, to review it a little bit here. It's been two or three weeks. Here's a message that's totally different. Comfort you. Comfort you, my people, says your God. Now, when people are in total confusion and frustration and not knowing what's going on and not knowing how this will all end or what needs to be done to get to the end, they're in confusion. They don't know. They just don't know. They don't know what they don't know. So here's a message that says comfort them. Well, how can they be comforted? 
only if they see some light at the end of the tunnel. Only if they see that there's somewhere to go, something to do, something that God is doing. Now, when he says, comfort you, my people, he's referring to his church and saying that in all this frustrations, now that we've been eunuchs over this period of time, there is some comfort to be had. And he gives the context of when, right here very soon. So it is a message, first of all, of comfort, of something positive, of something good to come. If you're uncomfortable, what do you look for? Something good to come. If the chair is too hot, is too hard, and you're uncomfortable in it, you start looking for a way to either recline it or have somebody find a pillow to put in it to somehow make you comfortable. So the position we've been in has been very uncomfortable. So what we need is some word, some message, some knowledge that will comfort us as to what is coming and how that can be a comfort to us. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now when he spewed us out, we were uncomfortable and confused. Now he says, cry to her that there's an end to this, that the warfare is accomplished, and that God has actually forgiven now, isn't that what he tells us in Revelation 3? To seek me, to seek silver and gold, to be tried in the fire, and to come to the point that he will forgive us and, and allow us to be part of what he's doing in his kingdom. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. So, here is a message then, once that has happened, that shows what God is going to do to comfort and strengthen and help us. And that the sins of Laodiceanism that we perpetrated are forgiven. And that he's going to decide to move forward. Now, he's going to go with 10%. Now, that apparently is how many respond to Revelation 3 and that message to Laodicea. Because we were all put in it, except Sardis, which died worldwide, and a few names saved out of it. But the rest went right on into Laodiceanism. All of us. Now, of that and his plea, he only gets a 10% return on So those are the ones that he says your warfare is accomplished. 
Because the 90% who do not respond to Revelation 3 will go into the tribulation. And they will die there. Probably all of them. Now they will have chance to repent. And Zechariah tells us about 30% or a third will before they die. So, if 10% respond and do what he tells us there in Revelation 3, then this message is to them. Now, it's also there for everybody else, so that if they didn't do what they should have, they'll see what God is doing, but they'll be in the tribulation, and they'll face repentance for not having responded to Revelation 3, and about a third of them will repent before God and still be part of the first resurrection. So he says, Yeah, you sinned. But this, what I've put you through in this last 33 years, is double what you might needed to have received. But on the other hand, I'm still only getting my tithe out of it, my 10% is all that respond to him. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So he said there's going to be someone who can bring you a message of comfort, a message that your sins will be forgiven that you will have received double for those sins, that the war will stop, the confusion and fighting will stop, and that God is coming to the desert. Christ tells us that in Zechariah 2. He's coming out to dwell with us and to be with us in the desert. But somehow a place has to be prepared in the desert. And he sends someone to the desert to give that message. Now, I don't know whether that little dream I had the other morning, it only lasted a few seconds, had anything to do with this or not, but I kind of think it might have, is that we got the end of Isaiah 39 there and the end of Herbert Armstrong's work, and then maybe God is saying, okay, chapter 40 is yours. Go preach it. Now, that's been going on for some, well, since 1996, really, when that message first came clear. Actually, 94, with a dream about preparing a place for God's people. So, it's been on the table, but now we're getting down to the point that it's time for these events to begin to happen, as you'll soon see. It's not time just to talk about it. Now it's time for it to begin to happen. And therefore, somebody has to initially lead that. Now, once the work itself begins with the people have gathered and the two leaders take charge, then that's a different deal. But in the meantime, there has to be a lead up to it just like there was 
with John the Baptist that lead up to the beginning of Christ's ministry and someone there to baptize him, his cousin. So, John the Baptist cried in the wilderness, a spiritual wilderness, and he also dwelt physically in the desert. It says there in Luke that he dwelt in the desert until he was revealed to, to the people, to Israel. <coughs> and I think that that is the key. So I'm not trying to say here that we're some great thing and that I'm some great thing. We're not. All God did was give us the information ahead of time so that we could come and prepare a place. And this place that we have here is not prepared. Now, we've lived here, and some others have lived here, and some of them have left, and some have rebelled and are still here. But the place isn't ready. If we're going to get 10% of what was the church, 7, 8, 10, 12, 15,000 people, whatever it is, they've got to have a lot more places to live than about 25 houses, old mobile homes. Now, that's the way it started out, and I believe that's the way it was supposed to. But we've had time to be here. We've had time to put the message on the Internet. We've had time to prepare ourselves. Now we've got to get this place ready for a lot of people to come in. And I think that needs to be done right away. So there's a cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the eternal, make straight in the desert a highway or a way to go or a way to get there for our God. Well, our God is going to do a work through a body of people. So a way has to be prepared for them to get here to do His work. God doesn't need a way to get here. <laughs> you know, Christ can come any moment in the twinkling of an eye. He has wandered here before. When ancient Israel was wandering in the desert out here, he says, I want you to have your bathroom activities all outside the camp, so if I come walk in the camp at night, I'm not going to step anything. So he came, sometimes in the night, maybe sometimes in the day. You didn't see him, but he was there walking around in the camp. So he didn't need a way prepared. He just needed a clean place to be without stepping in anything. So it isn't really for him personally. It has to be a, a way for his people to come so that they can serve him and do the work that he has for them to do. So in one sense, it's preparing the way of the Lord by preparing for his people so that they can get there and so they can do his work. Wasn't that kind of what John the Baptist did? He cried out the Christ would appear. And he baptized some. And he got them ready for when Christ would appear. And then when Christ did appear, there were people there 
who recognized and came and listened to him and heard what he had to say. So John was doing a preparatory work for what was ahead. And that's what he's saying here. Get things ready because a work has to be done that God is going to do. Now, we've already shown, I think pretty clearly, we can't do it, right? We can't do it. We've been putting these sermons on the Internet now for over two decades. Have they accomplished anything? Not so as you'd notice. No, they're just there. Nobody hardly ever pays any attention to them. And I have a reputation as being that idiot out in the desert thinking that Zion National Park area is the true Zion. Along with all kinds of other things about me. But you know what? It's not me. And it's not you. It's God. It's what He's going to do. That's all that matters. You and I fall far short of perfection. We're nothing. And can do nothing. We've shown that. We got a little bigger for a few years, and then we got smaller and smaller. And now we're just a bunch, mostly of old people who can't do much of anything. Up there trying to do some mining. You know, a shovel full of dirt's a lot heavier than it used to be. A bucket full of dirt's a lot heavier than it used to be. Just bending over is much, much tougher than it was ten years ago. And I've been at this for about twelve years now. Just barely get anything done, it seems. We're old. We're crippled. We can't do anything. There or here. We got a few young people, thankfully, so if a roof can... You know, what if we didn't have a few young people? Somebody's roof leaking. What are we going to get? Al and George? Nelson's getting too old. I'm getting too old. We can just barely get around. This has got to be from God. But still, a way has to be prepared. Then he says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the eternal shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. So, the time to comfort God's people, to prepare a way in the wilderness, is at a time when it is not very far from the glory of the eternal being revealed and all the governments of the world laid flat. Has that happened? No. It didn't happen during Herbert Armstrong's lifetime. While he was preaching away, did all the governments of the world get flattened? Was God's glory revealed? No. Has it been yet today? No. Not by any means. The governments of the world are pumping themselves up thinking that they're the greatest thing. America's been great, and America still thinks it's great. But 
China thinks it's great now, and Russia thinks it's great. And probably so does Zimbabwe. The hills and the mountains, the little ones and the big ones, all think they're wonderful. That hasn't been done. That hasn't been fixed. And certainly God's glory has not been seen in a way that they all see it together. So the time to preach this comfort and to prepare a way for God to do a work is just before all of these things happen. You go to Haggai, the last two or three verses of the book of Haggai say the temple will be built and that he will shake the earth in just a little while, he says. In just a little while. So the temple has to be built just before this shaking that we're reading about in Isaiah 40 occurs. And you've got to have people to do it. They're going to be coming. The voice said, cry, and he said, what? What's the cry? What's the message? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows on it, Surely the people is grass. So he says, compare the world to grass and flowers, and God is going to blow a hot breath on it and cause it to wither and die. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So he gives the timing of this very clearly here. When the governments are going to be flattened, when God's glory is going to be revealed, and when flesh is going to be dying off, just like a field of grass or flowers, and when the frost hits or the hot wind hits. Then there's a change in verse 9. It should read, O you that bring good tidings, get you up into the high mountain, good tidings to Jerusalem, that give bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So the time to, to say Christ is going to be doing a work soon, that's the good news. He's going to do a work of preaching the gospel around the world, of building the temple, of building Jerusalem, of saving his people out of it. And that's the good news for his people. There's good tidings that these things are going to happen. Behold your God. Christ says there in Malachi, he will come suddenly to his church, to his temple. Suddenly. Zechariah says he's going to come and dwell with them. So, behold, your God is part of the message. He's coming to do a work, and he's going to have his hands in it. He's not going to be sitting far off in the sides of the north. He'll be right here with his church, with his people. Whether he's visible or not is neither here nor there. His presence is indicated. Behold, the eternal God will come with strong hand. So he's not going to come and 
Just look around. He's going to come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. He talks about his arm of strength in several different places we've read. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Now, that's quoted in Revelation 11:18, where it's talking about his return in glory, and his reward is with him, and he says it's time to reward his saints, and so on. But that is, in the end time, the second and dramatic and final fulfillment of Isaiah. Here he's talking about hills and mountains that haven't yet been made low. He's talking about crying that man is about to die, but that there's good news for his people, Jerusalem and the church, Hebrews 12, 23. Zion and the church and Jerusalem are the same thing. So this is good news for the church of God. It's not good news for the world yet. That good news doesn't come to the millennium. But this is before Christ returns. The, the governments are going to be made low before that. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What's it been like these last 33 years when the physical shepherd God gave us died and we haven't had anyone to comfort us, to lead us, to guide us, to give us still waters, to hold us against his bosom? What has he been doing? He's been standing back with his head turned away, saying, I can't stand to look at you. So we have been praying. We've been trying to repent. We've been trying to get his attention. We've been trying to have healings. We've been trying to draw near to him and having great difficulty in so doing. And answers come a little bit here and there, but they don't come like this. This is a different picture. This is where he takes you in his arms and holds you up against his chest and comforts you and holds you and makes you feel warm and wanted and loved and needed instead of ignored and his head turned away. Totally different picture. And that's going to occur when he comes suddenly to his temple, not to the world, to his temple, to the church, and dwells with them in order to do a work. A work that he has already called you to. And that's why I am emphasizing it this much. is because God has given us foreknowledge. He showed us ahead of time. And we are so absolutely, unbelievably blessed to know that that it should affect our every prayer. It should affect our every attitude and our every day to realize that God has given you something He hasn't given anybody else yet so that you could come prepare a place for them to come when He does show them. Do you realize how honored you are and how we should respond? to his every need, to his every wish, 
to get done what he wants us to get done. Wow, what a calling. And it will not be long till he takes us in his arms and gently leads us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with a span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the eternal or being his counselor has taught him? And he says, here's a message. The end of the world is upon us. The mountains and hills are about to be knocked down, the governments, and God is going to show His hand. And He's going to show us some more things here in the same context in Isaiah, exactly what He is going to do. And we're going to go through it. So, He then says, Who are you compared to me? What do you think you can do without me? He says, here's a message of what I am going to do. Now, which of you can measure the mountains? You're going you're to stack them on a scales that you build, and you're going to measure and weigh them? What does a mountain weigh? He knows. You realize that? He knows how much a mountain weighs. You know what else he knows? He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Now, do you think he's interested in us? When he who can weigh a mountain can and does count our hair. We are very, very, very much involved with Him. And He is very, very much involved with us. But His position and His posture has been to look away. That's the attitude. And He is about to change that attitude and come back and hold us like a little lamb. And you're going to see your prayers answered in ways that you haven't seen in decades. It's going to be incredible. So, is he capable of this? Well, he's going to tell us. Who's directed him? Who's taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? Nobody has. You know, Job was a very, very obedient servant of God. And he's listed as one of the three most righteous men that had walked the earth, at least as far as Ezekiel's time. When Ezekiel mentioned Job, Daniel, and Noah. Incredibly righteous man. And yet, he had somehow begun to think that he was kind of on the same level as God. Well, maybe not quite that, but getting up there. So what did God do? He put him through some horrible things to humble him and make him realize that the vast difference between him and God was beyond credulity. 
Now I see who you are. Here's the one that can weigh mountains. Here's the one who's not been counseled by anybody, who counts people's hair. Here's a mind that goes so far beyond anything we could even begin to imagine as humans. That's who we deal with. The Lord of the universe. The one who made the earth. The one who made the mountains. And everything on them. Including us. So let's not get the big head. And because we managed to keep a few things somewhat properly, get all righteous about it. What can we do? We're not even to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing, trying to do some good. And then he says, if you don't let your right hand and your left hand know what each other's doing, you certainly aren't going to go around telling anybody else what great works you're doing. That's before God. That's for God. And if we brag about it, we become self-righteous. And then the, all those works mean nothing. Diddledy, nothing. Because we took credit. Christ said, I can do nothing. And yet we like to brag about what we've done. We want people to know. We say, well, don't tell anybody you know, about this. But then we go and announce it anyhow about what good works we've done. You know what that is before God? Excrement. Smells to high heaven when we think we have accomplished something. We can do nothing. And what few little things we do for each other or for someone are so small compared to what he does that there is no comparison. I mean, you say you love your brethren. How many, how many of your brethren's hairs have you counted? None. Job had to realize how vast the difference was between himself as a, by comparison, pretty righteous man, but not by comparison to God. And when he realized that, he was on the right track again. That's all God had wanted out of Job was for him to see the vast difference that there indeed was. So that's what he's telling us right here. He says the nations, verse 15, are as a drop of a bucket, or to count it as the small dust of the balance, not even worth weighing. You don't even have to dust that off before you weigh something. It's not enough there to make any difference in the weight. Behold, he takes up the islands or the coasts, the continents, if you will. It's a very little thing. The earth is just his footstool. That's all it is to him. Now, you may have important things in your life, but your footstool's not really one of them. That's just a place you put your feet for a little relief. It's not very big in comparison to the rest of your life. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Why should I even light a fire for Lebanon? It's not big enough 
in my estimation or by comparison to the universe, to even burn. Nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. How many beasts would it take to make a sufficient burnt offering to God? All the animals on the earth aren't sufficient as an offering to God. He made all the beasts and He made all the world they stand on and He made all the universe it's in. So, to those who receive this message and who understand, God immediately lets us know who's in charge, who can do. We can't. He can't. All nations are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing in vanity. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Let's see. God is like. What are you going to put in that blank? There's nothing like him. Nothing the workman melts a graven image, and the goldsmith spreads it over with gold, and casts silver change. And he that is so impoverished that he has no oblation chooses a free will, or a tree that will not rot. He seeks to him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. So they try to make gods of all kinds, wood and gold and so on and so forth. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the very beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of earth? It is he that sits upon the circle of the earth, the round globe. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. That stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. That brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth his vanity. It's all going to be put down before him. Yea, they shall not be planted, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither. And the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. So between tornadoes and hurricanes and God blowing upon mankind and all his judges and princes and rulers, they're going to become nothing, like stubble before the wind. To whom then will you liken me, or shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Now we're coming to a time when man and Satan's government is going to set up a government and tell all the world, you worship us. They're going to have an image of the beast. That's what he's talking about here. They'll form it out of wood, they'll form it out of gold, whatever they make it from, but they're going to say, worship this, like Nebuchadnezzar did, in an image of himself. And they're going to say, bow down and worship it, or you will not eat. And it says the whole world will worship the beast. And they'll take its mark, and take its welfare check, and eat. What are you going to do? Will you say, no, I won't take that mark. I worship the one true God of all the universe. And he will take care of me. 
Remember what Daniel said? I will not worship your image, O great king. Throw me to the lions. I'm not going to do it. Oh, okay. Off to the lions. And God preserved him. Have we any faith? Have we enough faith in God whom we can't see up against the beast that we can see that we shouldn't worship that beast and worship God instead? The whole world is going to worship the beast. Except a remnant of God's people. And a few who repent during the tribulation for not having repented when we had space to repent. Lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things that brings out their host by number. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. You believe that? Why say you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the eternal and my judgment is passed over from my God? It's the way the nations of Israel are doing today. Who needs God? we got the Democratic Party, after all. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Eternal, the Creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary? He's not a bit tired. There is no searching of His understanding. Compared to the world, compared to the nations which are dropping the bucket, Let's understand who we worship. He gives power to the faint. Who's that been? (coughs) The whole church is faint. The whole church is confused. He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, He increases strength. He's going to give us what we need. He's going to call a remnant out to do a work. And to give them everything they need. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. It won't even be good to be young and full of them, vigor and vitality, and think you can still whip the world. Even they, who are young, will faint and be weary and fall. But they that wait upon the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. God will give them the strength, the energy, the power, the renewal to do what even young men fail at. Because it's His strength and His power that will give us what we need to do His work and to finish it. This is a new work that will begin. And God will give it all the strength and power and energy that it needs. And we who are old and crippled will be there 
to work with power and strength that we do not now have. What an incredible God. 